watch and see how we all sing those songs together. Very grateful for Peter's leadership in this. Um, and he, he chose well based on our passage. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to First Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'm going to read verses 13 to 18. If you get deja vu while I'm reading, it's not deja vu and you're not going crazy. I'm reading the same passage we read last week and we're going over the same passage again. Last week we focused on how Paul applies um, the second coming as a means of giving hope to those who are grieving. He speaks to those who have been bereaved and have lost loved ones and wondering where are those ones this week we're going to go over the second coming again and we're going to do so a little bit more broadly. Let's read together. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep. For this is declared to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not receive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Dear God, this is such a grand topic. The second coming of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. I know I have not gifted enough to do justice to the hope that we have. We know it is. And so, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do that work, would plant that hope again in our hearts. For those whose hope does not rest today in Jesus, I pray that the seed would be planted in our hearts. And those whose eyes are not open to the beauty of Christ, I pray that eyes be open today. And I pray that you grow the hope of the church. Amen. I got a book from Simon, I think I've mentioned it to you before, uh, called Killing Fields and Living Fields. Um, it's a great book, it's really helped my faith, and I would encourage you to read it as well. It's the story of the church in Cambodia from its birth in the 1920s until, uh, I suppose, its greatest time, running halfway through the book. And where I am at the moment is that place of great, great suffering, not only for the church, but for the whole country in that period, 1975 to 1979. The communist revolutionary forces took over the country. The Khmer Rouge, the wicked deaths of Pol Pot. People from urban centers, city dwellers, were 
You're doing this on forced out of the city to go and live and die essentially in the, in the field. And there's a communist agrarian ideology. Millions die. In those years, it's estimated that about 50% of the population of Cambodia died. About 90% of the church was wiped out. Many were tortured and executed by the Khmer Rouge. Many more died still through starvation and disease. In these years, the bodies littered the streets of cities and littered the countryside. If they were buried, it would have been in mass shallow graves, with sometimes rain and women exposed body parts to the light of day. This book highlights the differences in the feelings that exist among the people towards this day. Highlights the compassion and mercy that Christians have. Highlights that many of those who live in the, the country aren't Christians, but the Buddhist population who have no real love for those who are the cities. It's a, a sort of a situation of haves and haves not safely in common. That good against good and evil against suffering. So many were hardened and even during this time, those who were tortured and who were killed must have done something to deserve it. In this time for the lost, there's an Eastern sort of cyclical view of history. And what happens will happen again and again and again. There will be reincarnation as well. But if we are disciples, we reincarnate into a different life. Interestingly, this Eastern cyclical view of history is similar to the view of history that was common in the Great Roman world during Paul's day. The history is not moving forward to something in particular, not coming to a head, culminating to an end or a goal. St. Augustine, in his fourth century work, The City of God, talks about this. He speaks of this Greco-Roman view, and he highlights the difference with the Christian worldview. He says history is headed in one particular direction. And he sees as the incarnation of God's Son and his atonement death as non-repeatable events that prove that history is not moving in a cycle but is moving forward to a goal. Now the secular communists that have committed those atrocities in Cambodia also believe that history is moving towards a common goal or to a goal. And their aim was to see up history to reach that goal. It was their goal. The deaths of the millions were unimportant. They were nothing more than fertilizers of the ground. Indeed, every secular ideology that sees progress towards a goal coming through human needs, when we decide it leads to our own human flourishing, has ended in failure, or else great atrocities against human life. Well, the 20th century was the most bloodiest century in the history of the world. And even in our own day, we need to look no further than the millions and millions of unborn being destroyed for the sake of convenience and in progress. Christianity says history is moving forward to a goal that it is not a goal of our own making. It's not going to come through human needs. 
And many of the things I say this morning, you might disagree with. There are smarter men, way smarter men than me, on different ends of the eschatological spectrum. But hear me out. I will be gracious as I open this passage. And I pray that at least at the end of the day, we will together affirm our similarities and be encouraged mutually in our common hope in the Lord. This is Paul's aim. He says in verse 18, encourage one another with these words. So I pray you will be encouraged as we speak about Christ's coming in this chapter. I think we should see four things, important things for the way that we live about Christ's return. Number one, Christ's return will be personal. This is the foundation. It will be personal. Paul roots our hope He roots our eschatology in the gospel of Christ. In verse 14, he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So you remember, they're wondering, where are our loved ones? Are they going to somehow miss out on this great and glorious day? They're going to maybe miss out on the resurrection The resurrection body, Paul saying, by no means will your loved ones who died in Christ miss out. We believe Jesus died and rose again, and as even so, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. So the first coming of Christ, the incarnation, was a historical event. We believe God the Son took on flesh. We believe he died on a cross. We believe he rose again in victory over the grave. This is the heart of the Christian faith. Literal, historical events in which we believe. If you don't believe in the sin-defeating, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and the death-defeating, physical resurrection of Christ, then it is not Christianity that you're talking about. 
And it is not the real Christ of Scripture and history to whom you are looking for life. There are some who claim affiliation to Christ, who say it doesn't really matter if all of those things actually happened. Who even say it doesn't matter if he literally rose again from the grave. Some scholars have said as long as, you know, when you you think about Christ, he rises to that place of prominence in your heart. They spiritualize that event. And so, like they spiritualize the first coming, often the second coming is spiritualized as well. We're not waiting, they say, for a, a real, like a physical, personal return of Christ to bring an end to the world as we know it, to usher in something new. He's come to us spiritually, they say. But the Bible is clear. We believe Jesus died and rose again. Paul is placing his flag in the ground. We believe it literally happened. And as that literally happened, so we believe he will return literally, personally, visibly. The Bible's teaching on the second coming of Christ is not an allegory for anything. Acts chapter 1 verse 11, the angels said to the disciples at Christ's ascension, they said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. As he left, so he will return. And Paul affirms that here in this passage. In verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. He will descend from heaven. He is coming himself for us. Now there is mystery here. There is mystery to this, what it's going to be like. I don't believe we should speculate about everything. How is it that all eyes will look upon him? You know, it's not like, um, if you watch those alien invasion movies, if you've ever seen like Independence Day or something like that, I've always wondered how is it that the aliens always invade the USA? It's usually a a big city like New York City. I don't think that's how we are to think about it. Jesus descending just over Joburg or just over Durban. There's a geographical reality to, to this that I believe we can't comprehend right now. But what we do believe is that it will be Christ in the flesh. We fix our hopes and our hearts on Him, on the return of a person. Are you waiting for this? Are you longing for this day? Do you want to see him? To see him, as Paul says, not as in a mirror dimly, but face to face. To know him, not in part, but fully, even as you are fully known by him. Christ's coming is personal, number one. Number two, Christ's coming will be vindicating. Now, as I unpack what I mean here, let me say this as well. If you've ever heard anything about the end times, you've probably heard something about the rapture. The rapture is not in your English Bible, but it does come from this passage. Christ comes, the dead in Christ rise, and it says in verse 13 of those alive, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That word caught up is from the Latin, or the the Latin for that word is rapturo, from which we get the word rapture. 
Now, interestingly, the, the Greek word is the word harpazo, from which we derive the English harpoon. It's quite a, a picture that Paul is painting here. And it's probably better to say you look forward to the day of rapture than to the day of harpooning. And it's probably best for me to just say this up front as well, to mention the, the elephant in the room for most Baptist churches when we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that there are very different views about this passage. There are very different views about the, and different beliefs about the rapture. There is a system of eschatology that many sincere, Bible-believing, godly, orthodox Christians, even in our church, hold to that looks forward strictly not just to one return of Christ, but to two returns. They believe for various reasons, and we don't have time to unpack all of this. I might touch on one or two of these reasons in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that when Christ comes, as, he, as Paul describes in chapter 4, he won't come all the way to the earth. But at that time, he will come for the church. The church will be raptured, they say, and they will return with Christ to heaven. They'll be with Christ for a short period of time. We call that time the great tribulation. And then at the end of the tribulation, Christ will return again. And that time, he will come all the way to the earth. In this system, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is often distinguished from other passages. And they say it's important to know which passages are referring to the rapture and which passages are referring to the, the coming proper. Passages like Matthew 24. Uh, I just want to say up front that as I preach this, I'm going to be preaching from the perspective of there only being one return. I believe that the idea of two returns is foreign to the New Testament and that you'd be hard-pressed to relegate what Paul is speaking about in 1 Thessalonians 4 to a different event as, say, Matthew 24. In fact, Matthew 24, verse 29 to 44, I believe is the framework that Paul uses for his teaching in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to chapter 5, verse 11. Paul is expanding perfectly on what Jesus said there in Matthew 24. Just listen to, the, for example, the similarity in the language. Jesus speaking. Matthew 24, 29 to 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. You know, striking, striking resemblances between the language Jesus employs and the language Paul employs in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And this correlation continues into chapter 5, where Paul reiterates what Christ had said and spoken about the suddenness of his coming, teaching that we are to be not spiritually drunk, but sober and ready for that day. So as I preach, I will be preaching as if there's one return at the end of the tribulation. If you disagree with me, we can't be friends anymore. <laughs> You'll be able to sharpen your understanding of the other camp. You can sharpen your, your knife, right? I'm just joking. 
If you disagree with me, the hope that is the bedrock of our faith is, is fundamentally the same. All you have to do is sort out which return it refers to in, in your system. And we can have coffee about it later. I love to discuss these things. I love to uh, have friendly debates over this, unless you defeat me in debate, that is. <laughs> what is clear, I believe, is the, the vindicating nature of this rapture. Many think about the rapture, they, they, they talk about a, a quiet, a secret event that I don't believe fits this passage at all. You know, the, the man who wakes up one morning and his Christian wife has just disappeared. Or, or that famous bumper sticker, in case of the rapture, rapture, this car will be unmanned. You might have seen some of the movies. By secret rapture, if you mean loud and visible, but no one knows when, then that's fine. But if you mean that Christians will be taken and the world will be left scratching their heads saying, what just happened? Then I think this passage needs to cause you to think again. Verse 16, Paul says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Christ's coming will be public. It will be loud. The Son of Man comes, and I believe what Paul is talking about here is his own cry, a cry of command that raises the dead from the grave, echoed by the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. John Piper says this is the noisiest verse in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the trumpet of God is seen in various places. In some places, it's prophesied that the, the trumpet will sound and it will announce the day of the Lord. I believe Paul picks this up in chapter 5, a day of the gathering of God's people, the coming of his salvation, and also a day of judgment for his enemies. This will be a day of vindication. Christ will be vindicated and the promises of God, all of them will be vindicated. The faith of his people will be vindicated. The faith of the Thessalonians in their city that, that was so scoffing at them and their faith. The faith of the martyred Cambodian church. The faith of those who refused to compromise and to follow the world's systems. Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This will not be a day of rejoicing for all. It will be a day of terror for the world. Revelation 6.16, they will cry to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For those who trifle with Christ, they need to hear that he is coming back and it will not be a day for trifling with him anymore. But for the church, it will be a day of joy. It will be a day of safety and a day of peace. We will behold him and we will cry, our salvation has come. And isn't it amazing that we are able to rejoice on that day? Isn't it amazing when Christ comes in his holy glory, we can stand before him and rejoice. 
How amazing that the king himself would come for us. That he would love us as a groom loves his bride. We will sing in a few minutes, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew the song will sing, hallelujah, what a savior. In the Old Testament, that trumpet also signifies God's appearing, the gathering of his people. We see it in various places. One such place is around Mount Sinai. The trumpet sounds at that time and God's presence is made manifest and it is terrifying. It is terrifying. Smoke and fire. The mountain quakes as if to be split apart. And the soon-to-be-formed covenant people are terrified at his presence, and rightly so, because he is a holy God. They are commanded at at this trumpet sound to approach the mountain, but to stay at the edge. Do not get too close, lest you perish. That is very different to what Paul describes in our passage. When Christ returns and the trumpet sounds, rather than the command to keep distance, the cry of command will draw people out of the grave, draw people to himself, the elect from all over the world, to his glorious presence. Now, I know myself, I know my heart, and you do too if you are a Christian, and we would rightly say, I am not fit to meet this king. I'm not fit to see him. I should rightly fear, but we believe Jesus died and rose again. His death has made atonement for our sins. His resurrection is the first fruits of our own. It is the guarantee of our joy when we rise to meet him. And in that moment, we will be changed to be like him. How glorious is that? When you know your sin. At Sinai, it was only a partial manifestation of the glory of God, and there was fear and dread at His holiness. But at Christ's coming, there is a full revelation of His glory, and there is joy then and comfort for the church. And only one thing can make that possible, and that is Calvary, the cross of Christ. Have you come to Calvary? Have you come to Christ alone to be saved by Him? Are you trusting in Him? Have you come to the cross and laid down your life, saying, I belong to you, body and soul? Will the day of His coming be a day where faith becomes sight, or will it be a day of wailing for you? Christ's coming will be personal, it will be vindicating, and thirdly, it will be triumphant. There is a profound difference between the first coming of Christ and the second. His first coming was characterized by obscurity, in humiliation, by poverty and suffering. Isaiah 53 verse 2 to 3 says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. 
and we esteemed him not. And we esteem him now. We glory in our Redeemer. We glory that he came, as he says in John 3, 17, not to condemn the world, but to save it. But we have to understand and live knowing that his second coming will be different. In exaltation, he will come. It'll be a coming characterized by triumph and glory and honor. He who came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world will come as the Lion of Judah. And every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the picture I believe Paul is painting in this passage. When he speaks in verse 15 of this coming of the Lord, he uses a special word. Paul has three words in the New Testament for this coming of the Lord. And this word is the word parousia. It was a word that became for the Christian people, the people of God, synonymous with his return. But it was also a word that was used widely in Roman culture. It was commonly used in reference to the glorious coming of some deity to a city or a sovereign to a city. Somebody who was honored almost as divine. An imperial visit was an event of great pomp and celebration. Rich banquets, speeches of praise, sacrifices would be made at temples, statues would be dedicated. The officials of the city and a multitude of people would leave the city to meet this person, this dignitary, to receive the one who came. In fact, Paul uses that word, the technical word they had for such a meeting in this passage. In 1 Thessalonians 4:17, we who are alive, he says, who are left, will be caught up together with them, that's the dead now raised in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. They understood what this word meant. It was a technical word. So scholars say the readers would have understood. They would have naturally read that as believers, we, we go to meet him, this king, to welcome him and escort him to the earth. The word is used in two other times in Scripture, both with the same meaning. Matthew 25, in the parable of the ten virgins, where Christ is speaking about his return, preaching, speaking that we are to be ready. He uses this parable. The virgins, according to marriage custom, were to be ready for the coming of the groom, to go out and meet the groom and, and bring him back to the wedding feast. Some of them, because the groom was delayed, had become drowsy. They didn't make sure they had enough oil in their lamps. So when the call was given, Christ said, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. There's our word. Those who were ready went out to escort the groom back to the feast. But those who were not ready did not have enough oil and they missed out. Are you ready to meet the king? In Acts 28, Paul is approaching Rome, and in verse 15 it says, And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Apius and three, the three taverns to meet us. It's that same word. The, the brothers come out of the city to meet Paul and bring him back to Rome, escort him for that final leg. That's the word that's being used in this passage. We meet the Lord in the air, and we welcome our King, the one who is powerful to save. He will come to liberate. He will come to free. He will come to destroy our great enemy, the one who Paul calls the prince of power of the air. 
We will meet the Lord in the air and he will destroy the prince of power of the air. He who roams and roars now will cower before the lion of Judah. We meet our king to escort him to the earth to take his kingdom. Mankind has lived generation after generation here, not as good stewards, but as pretenders to the throne. We build our kingdoms and set up our thrones and we have failed to honor the king. But we come with him. When we come with him, it will be to usher him to that which belongs to him, not to us. He's not just a visiting dignitary to be shown a good time. He is a returning king. And our king will take the mess that we have made, the, the mess that our sin has created, and he will make all right. He will reign. But does he reign in your life today? Does he reign in your heart today? His return is personal. It's vindicating. It'll be triumphant. And finally, number four, Christ's coming is redemptive. From the very first pages of Scripture, we see God's intention in creation, and that is to dwell with man. He prepares a garden. That first temple of his dwelling together with man, he sets his image bearers in the garden. He, he makes them there to, to serve him, to walk with him. He blesses them and provides for them. But sin comes and shatters that garden experience, bringing death and destruction. And man is cast out of the garden and away from God's presence. And so what is the story of Scripture? It is the story of how God does not relinquish all of mankind to that fate of separation from Him. It could have ended there for us. But God will have a people for Himself. This is the story of the Bible. And Christ came. He came to ransom and redeem that people unto God. And so available to us today is fellowship with Christ. Real fellowship, but partial fellowship. The sin that made us guilty and deserving of hell and separation from the Father was paid for at the cross by Christ. The penalty and the guilt of sin was removed because it was placed upon Him. This is the foundation of our faith. But the presence of sin, the presence of that resulting death have yet to be finally removed. But he will come and he will bring with him a change. And that change is perfect fellowship with our God. Never again to be threatened by sin. That is the crescendo of this passage. And Paul says in, in verse 17, we will always be with the Lord. That's where it's all going. This last compact underestimated phrase, we will always be with the Lord, is the summary of the entire Bible's progression. It is the summary of our eschatological hope. It is our destination. And so whatever else we say about this passage, whatever else we bring to it with our eschatological glasses on, we should all be together at least in our heart in longing for this, forever with the Lord, forever with the Lord. Eschatology goes awry when we get caught up in the details and forget the person. We're in trouble when we make most prominent the how and the when and the where and not the who. 
We can ask our questions and debate them over coffee, but we need to make sure as the people of God that at the end of the day, we're standing together with our hearts full, singing together about the who. And any teaching on the second coming of Christ that doesn't stir in the heart a longing for this day where we will have perfect fellowship with him falls short of the biblical goal. So do you know Christ? Do you long to see him today? That is the separator between men. Unbelievers may shudder at the thought of the day. They may have the odd fear of hell, but what they do not fear is what they ought to fear more than all else forever without him. The king, our redeemer and friend, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, the glorious one. He is to us wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, and prince of peace. He is the alpha and the omega, the bright and morning star, the son of righteousness. He is the bread of life and the living water. He is our shepherd and our precious cornerstone. He is the holy one of God. He is Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. And hope in his coming sets our lives ablaze with purpose because we know we belong to him. His coming gives fortitude in our trials and in our sufferings. Paul says this in Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We are to be like Job in the middle of his unspeakable suffering. He has a hope that is so beautifully before his time, so beautifully eschatological. Job 19, 25 to 26, for I know that my Redeemer lives. Do you know in your hardship, my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Is that your hope? Christ's coming stirs us to endurance. It makes us long-suffering, compassionate, and forgiving. As I'm reading through this story of the, the Christians in Cambodia, this is what strikes me. These people hunted and martyred their courage in torturous times, psychologically torturous conditions. The communists have spies everywhere, people ready to sell somebody out for a bowl of food. And yet still these Christians would share their faith whenever half a chance presented itself. Even to persecutors. Even at the risk of life, they were compassionate and had urgency and mission. When was the last time I shared my faith? When was the last time you did? Christ's coming stirs our affections and it drives us, moves our hearts towards holiness. Paul speaks at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4 of having run his race well and, and how he waits for a crown of righteousness. He says that is coming for all who have loved his appearing. Is the descriptor of Paul's life the descriptor of yours? Will you get to the end of your life having loved his appearing? That's not just words. It's not just an emotional response to the songs. It means I walk with him day by day, humbly and obediently. 
I want to know him and be like him. 1 John 3, verse 2 to 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And what does that mean for right now? He says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, Jesus, is pure. We want to see him. We want to know him. And so we walk with him today. Have you set your heart upon the personal, vindicating, triumphant, redemptive return of Christ? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is so much hope to be found in the truth that there is nothing that, that we go through in this life that is meaningless. There is no suffering that is meaningless. There is no trial that is meaningless. There is no wrong that is not going to be made right by you and by your justice. Lord, we ought to be more aware that it is a justice that should have meant and spelt the end of us. We do not deserve to be called your bride. We do not deserve your love. And yet in your justice, Christ died for us. And so we have hope and we are grateful in this and we ask, Lord, that you would allow this hope to rise more and more in our hearts, that we would take our mission more seriously, that when we are wronged, we would forgive in turn, that we would show mercy and love and hold out the hope that we have. I pray that you would help us to be ready in season to give an answer for this hope. I pray that you would make us urgent and long-suffering with this hope. Amen.